Good morning. My name, my name, my name is Jamie. <laughs> my name is Jamie Reinhardt. Easier said than done. And uh, I am one of the volunteers that works with the junior high ministry here at Fellowship. And I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage to you this morning. We are in Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, and all the way through to the end. <laughs> you alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all, and all the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him up from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all his people, for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land, and then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. You came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and instructions that were just and decrees and commands that were good. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all your commands, decrees, and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies, but in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of clouds still led them forward by day, and the pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations, and you placed your people in every corner of the land. They took over the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Abation. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things, with cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you, and they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you, and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. And once more, you let their enemies conquer them. Yet, whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times. 
You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations, by which people will find life if they only obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. In your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the peoples of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors, all of your people, from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserved. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though you showed them your goodness, though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large, fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now, today, we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure, and we are in great misery. Oh, there's more. The best part. The people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. Wow, thank you, Jamie. That is a long prayer. It is so good to be with you. I hope you'll turn to that passage that Jamie just read out of Nehemiah chapter 9. It's the longest prayer in all of the Bible except for some of the Psalms. And it does kind of raise a question, and that is, should you pray long prayers? Is God more likely to answer a long prayer than a short prayer? What do you think? D.L. Moody was a uh, preacher from another generation. He was in a church service in England, and this man was praying this long, long prayer. And Moody finally stood up and said, while our brother finishes his prayer, let's sing a song. <laughs> On another occasion, this man was... Uh, this, this man was praying this long, elaborate, sophisticated King James English prayer, and Moody walked up behind him, tapped him on the shoulder, and whispered, just call him Father and tell him what you want. Jesus would have agreed with D.L. Uh, Moody. Listen to what Jesus said. When you pray, do not babble on like pagans, for they think by their many words they'll be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, say this with me, if you know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's 30 seconds. That's really short. So does that mean we don't pray long prayers? Well, Nehemiah 9 is in the Bible. It's inspired. 
And if prayer is talking to God, sometimes we just have a lot to talk about, don't we? The Puritans used to say, pray till you pray. And I think that's good counsel. Prayer is not about getting something. It's about being with someone. And when you're with someone that you love who wants to talk to you, and by the way, other people might not want to talk to you, but your Heavenly Father wants to talk to you, and He wants to hear you. So we can pray long prayers. Why is this prayer in the Bible? Now we're told in verse 1 that the people are standing there, this, this solemn assembly, and they're dressed in burlap, real itchy sackcloth. And they're fasting, they're going without food, they're crying out to God. And the question is, why? Why, why this long prayer? Why are the people so disturbed? Look at verse 37, 36 and 37 of this chapter. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. But behold, we're, we're slaves, and its rich yield goes to the king whom you set over us because of our sins they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. That's why they're fasting and praying. We are in great distress. And I've been around church enough to know that if we're honest, some of us would say, I came in here and I'm in great distress. My marriage, my kids, my job, my health, my finances, my church, my emotional stability, my future. If you're not in great distress this morning, you will be. Nobody gets out of this life without going through great distress. And if you love people, if you love people, you will be in great distress from time to time. So what do you do when you're in great distress? What have God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what do God's people do when they're in great distress? Say the answer for me. We pray. We pray. Many people just feel like they can't pray. Because they brought the distress on themselves. Look at verse 36 once again. Last part. Because we're we are slaves because of our sins. Because of our sins. We caused this distress, they said. We brought it on ourselves. God put slave masters over us, so he's disciplining us, and we brought this on ourselves. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, well, the rest of you can call on God in your distress, not me. You don't understand why I'm in this situation that I'm in. I sinned my way into this mess. I brought it on myself. God's <laughs> disciplining me. So you can call on God because you're probably not in distress because of something you did, but I brought this on myself. How many people have I heard tell God, you don't have good news for me. You can't give me good news. Don't ever say that. 
Don't ever say, don't ever tell God he can't bring you good news because you're in a mess and you brought it on yourself. You're belittling the cross. You're denying his mercy. But how do you talk to God when you're in a mess and you brought it on yourself? I want to talk to you this morning about good news and hard times. Good news in hard times. I want to learn how they did it. And what is so astonishing is they prayed back to God the entire history of the Old Testament. What Jamie read is the most concise, complete telling of the story of the Old Testament that you can find over a thousand years. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because their question is, is there any hope that God will hear us and rescue us from this distress that we brought on ourselves, Or he's going to wash his hands of us. You know, the Bible talks about something called besetting sins. The Bible speaks of strongholds. There are sins that we commit over and over and over and over. We promise not going to do it again. We do it again. We fail over and over. Have you ever caught yourself thinking, I wonder if he'll forgive me this time? How many times can he forgive me for the same thing that I'm committing, the same sin? That's what they needed to know. What kind of God do we have? Is he done with us? Or is he the kind of God who can give us some hope in this mess that we're in that we created ourselves? How do you know what God is like? How do you know what kind of God he is? Well, one way is you look at how he has acted in the past. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. They're going to some of the deepest things they know about God. A few years ago, I was in great distress because of a church situation. It was, and I had, I, I had some part in doing it, some part I didn't have to do it. I was in great distress. And a fellow pastor, an African-American pastor named Frank Thomas, called me on the phone. He said, hey, would you go out to lunch with me? Sure. We went out to lunch together, and he told me about a time he was in a mess that he created. And here's what he said to me. When you're in the darkest moment of your life, Sam, go to the deepest thing you know about God and hold on to that. When you're in the darkest moment of your life, go to the deepest thing you know about God and cling to that. That's what they're doing. In fact, they're going to tell us six things about God, some of the deepest things that you can say about God. Eighty-five times in this prayer, long prayer, you, the words you and yours are mentioned. So this is, this is about God. So let me just run through those, um, and I won't be as long as this is a long prayer. Number one, there is one infinite personal God who created and sustains and rules everything. Look at verse 6. Back to chapter 9, verse 6. You are the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, sometimes you read capital L, small O, small R, small D. But when you read all caps, that goes back to the Jews who thought the name of God, Exodus 3, Yahweh, I am who I am, they thought that was so holy they would not say it. They thought it would be wrong to say God's personal name. So instead of saying, when they would pray, when, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say, Lord, Adonai. 
And the translators of our Bible pick that up. And whenever you read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's a reference to God's <coughs> personal name, Yahweh. You alone are God. You have no competitors. You depend on nobody. You depend on nothing. You never had a beginning. You will never have an end. That's reality. Hard to understand, but deal with it. You alone are God. You created all that exists. Why did God create what he created? All of that he said, why does the universe exist? It's because out of his great abounding love, the overflow of love, <laughs> and his desire that people know him and enjoy him, God created all that he created for his glory. It sustains everything. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which means he is the absolute ruler of everything. Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands years ago, said there is not one square inch in the universe over which Christ does not cry, mine. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. We've all seen sparrows. There are millions of them. You can't count the number of sparrows in the world. And God knows every single, each one of millions of sparrows, and not a one dies without his permission. Even the smallest things in our life are under God's control, under his sustaining, his rule. Do we have any kids in here this morning? Have we, yeah, okay. I want you to think about something. Did you ever lose a tooth? What happened when you lost it besides getting something from a tooth fairy? What, what happened? Did you do that? What happened when you lose a tooth? It hurts. <laughs> You're ruining my illustration, kid. <laughs> Another one comes in, right? That's amazing. Unless it's a permanent tooth. It's amazing. And when that new tooth comes in, it's a reminder that God is doing that. But God even controls, creates us like that. Every color in the universe, every blade of grass is meant to say, God is great and you can enjoy him and you rejoice in him. When you go to the beach this summer or you go to the lake or you go to the mountains or wherever you go, let all of that creation that he made fill you with worship amazement, joy at who he is. You watch the, feel the breeze this morning. You watch the waves that come in if you're at the ocean. I mean, the Bible says Jesus even commands that. He, he controls the waves, the wind. Amazing. Think of all the systems operating in your body right now, just keeping you alive over which you have no control. You breathe without thinking about it. Wouldn't it be terrible if you had to think about breathing at night? Breath in, breath out, breath in, breath in. No. It's all under the Lord's control. He sustains us moment by moment. He preserves us. So this is where you begin when you're in distress. You, you, you begin with who God is and how big He is and how wonderful that He is. You're God. You created all. You rule over all. You rule over me. Then verse 7 says, 
God chose Abram, gave him a new identity, called him to walk in faithfulness. God calls people to himself. In fact, Jesus once said, no man can come to me except my Father draw him. We never seek God without him first seeking us. He pursues us. He awakens, awakens in us feelings and desires to, to draw near to him, to find out why we're here on earth. Where did we come from? In fact, we are here today. If you are a Christian, you are here today because the Spirit of God in free grace drew you to himself. Verse 8 says he made a covenant with Abram, changed his name, promised him a land, and that's the problem. These people are saying, you gave him land, and we're slaves in that land you gave. Is it what you had in mind? question is, will he rescue us? Will he change this? Will he see our distress? We've broken his covenant so often. We tried. We failed. We tried. We failed. We promised not to do it again. We failed over and over. Will he run out of patience? Will he always be merciful? I mean, all we've seen so far is he's really big, and he's great, and he's strong. And verse 8, the last part of that verse says, you are, you keep your promises because you are righteous. There's the second thing. God is righteous. That undergirds everything in the scriptures. What does it mean to be righteous? What is righteous? Ask a 15-year-old, he'll say, girls are righteous. Can we go a little bit deeper than that? What does it mean to be righteous? It means to do what is right. Everything God does is right. It's just. He has no standard he has to conform to. No one can tell him to do the right thing. God is the standard of what is right. Righteous means, God is righteous means whatever he does is consistent with who he is. Verses 9 and 10 says, he split the Red Sea, sank the Egyptian army to the bottom, sent plague after plague, delivered his people from bondage. That story has been told, the Exodus story has been told 10,000 times. Charlton Heston on television. Why? Well, the end of verse 10 says, you are making a name for yourself. I so appreciate what Jenny said this morning. She talked about vacation Bible school and all the Bible stories are going to be told. Question, why are there so many Bible stories? Why when our children are small do we tell them one Bible story after another? What's the point? There it is in verse 10. God is making a name for himself. God is revealing who he is and how glorious he is. All of history is God making a name for himself. Tomorrow is 4th of July, Independence Day. Declaration of Independence happened 246 years ago. What's the point? In that event, God was making a name for himself. He was revealing something of himself, as he does with all of history for our world, for our country. And it says, you were making a name for yourself, verse 10, as it is to this day. Which day is he talking about? Nehemiah's day, about 400 B.C. And when was God making a name for himself in the Exodus? A thousand years before, 
For a thousand years, God has been making a name for himself so people can trust him. People might enjoy him. That's why all those stories are in the Bible. God's revealing something of who he is. Here's the third thing. God does not abandon his people, and he's always aware of their circumstances. Verse 9, just repeat it over and over and over in this long prayer. God saw their afflictions. God heard their cries. Over and over in the history of God's people, God's aware of their circumstances, and he does not abandon his people. And you know what that says to me? Regardless of how you came into this room, Regardless of the circumstances in your life, we have hope that we can grab hold of as God's people because he knows where we are and he knows how we are. You know, part of being a pastor, sometimes pastors are kind of like first responders. We, are, we have the privilege of being with people in some really hard times, tough times, and I'm not naive. I know some of us come in here pretty banged up. I know some of us are disappointed with the way life has turned out for us. I know some of us have a marriage that is exhausted. And I know some of us are really worried, desperately worried about our children. And this text says God knows and he has not abandoned you. Not a tear in this room, not a worry in this room that God does not say, I know, I know. And you're not alone. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear what? No evil because you are with me. That's good news. It's good news for me at least. I don't know how many times in my life I've not known what to do next. And I'm so glad over and over God has not abandoned me to what I think is best. And that brings us to the fourth thing. God guides and instructs his people. Verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. He was here a moment ago. There it is. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. How awesome would that be? Where are we going today? Well, there's the fire. There's the pillar of fire. We'll just follow it. God's guiding his people all through the history of God's people. Not only is he aware of where they are, but he is promising to guide them. Verses 13 and 14 says, he gave them his law, the law at Mount Sinai. We should love God's law. It's a gift to us. Friends, if you're not grateful for the laws in this country, you haven't lived somewhere else. It's illegal in our country for people to take your stuff. You can pick up a phone, dial 911 in a few moments, hopefully. Somebody shows up and they handle it for you. If someone's trying to harm you, there are laws to protect us. The Old Testament writers spoke of the law of God as honey, sweet to their taste. They meditated on it. And what's the point? God's guiding his people. He instructs them. How does he do it? Through his word. We talked about that fellowship, Bible, church. In God's Word, the Bible, God tells us how He designed the universe to work. A lot of people think God's Word, the Bible, is outdated, or it, it's on the wrong side of history, or it's narrow-minded. In reality, God's Word was given to us, God's law was given to us, so that we can flourish. It's an expression of His love, His goodness, His grace. Now, here's the problem. 
You can know the Bible really, really well and still not know what to do. Do I marry this girl or that girl? Do I take this job offer or just stay where I am? How many children should we have? Where, where should I retire? Should I retire? Where are we going to live? What house do we live in? So how do you know? How does God guide us and instruct us on things that the Bible doesn't specifically deal with? Well, verse 20 says he's given us his good spirit to instruct us. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit himself lives inside of you and can guide you. And there's another way that God guides us, and that is something that we forget, and that is the faith community, the, the church, the people of God. Brothers and sisters who, who can actually speak into our life. This is one of the things that really frustrates me about Christianity in our culture. We take Christianity and we separate it from the idea of the church, from our faith family. It's just Jesus and me. We're good. Jesus and me. It's not how the Bible says Christianity was created. It's not how it flourishes. I got an email and a guy said, I'm thinking about taking a job in another city. Do you know of a church there that preaches the gospel and is serious about the things of God? You got it right. Yes. I told my 18-year-old grandson who's headed to college, now he's in his sophomore year. I said, find a church, find a campus ministry, get some Christian buddies who will support you and encourage you and walk with you. That's how Christianity works. You and me in relationship with one another, bearing with one another, being instructed by one another, helping each other. And it's not easy. Christian community is not easy. It's a whole lot more difficult than I'm making it sound because we're prone to selfishness. We have blind spots we, we don't see, but we have to invite other people to speak into our lives. I, I told my wife, I told a very small group of friends, any inconsistency in my life, would you lay it before me? Bring it to me. I want to be a man who's above reproach. Here's number five. God provides for his people. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in and possess the land you had swore to give them. He's just talking about the goodness of God who provided physical needs, and God still provides physical needs. Not greeds, but needs. God doesn't say he's going to give us whatever we want as often. We're free to ask him for what we one. A lot of people feel like they've been robbed by God because he didn't give them something they thought they were entitled to. Q. God doesn't live in a lantern and we're not Aladdin. If you're good and moral, that doesn't mean that God is going to give you anything you want and everything that you think you deserve. Trust me on this. You don't want what you deserve. You want what you don't deserve. And he knows what we need to be the kind of people that he wants us to be. And sometimes what we need is tough love, not tender love. There are times God puts hardships and difficulties in our way. And that's hard for us to reconcile with his love. You know, when you fall and bust your chin, the doctor puts stitches in your chin. And sometimes that hurts. But he's trying to help you. When a shepherd pulls a sheep out of a thorn bush, it hurts the sheep. But he's trying to save the sheep. When a fireman tosses you from a burning 
building on the second floor and you land in some fireman's arms and you get hurt, he's trying to save you. That's not where I got this sermon, I can assure you of that. Sometimes we're like a bow that God bends. He doesn't break, but he will bend us. He's testing our faith. He's strengthening our faith. God wants us to love him above everything else, and sometimes he has to wean us from some things that we love in order that we love him more. God has great plans for you. God intends to use you in some great work. It's going to be hard. It won't be easy. But God's getting you ready for that, and he is training you. He's conditioning you just like a runner is conditioned. And he also gives victories in life. He puts people into the land. They've been slaves 400 years. They don't know anything about fighting. They go in and they possess the land, and God gives them victory after victory after victory. Have you ever thanked God for the things you're able to do and you never thought you could? Promotions you didn't expect? You ever stop to revel in the goodness of God? It's the right thing to do. To recognize God's with me, His hand is on me. Okay, so far so good. Seeing all these wonderful things about the Lord until you come to verse 16. And from verse 16 to verse 37, there are six expressions of Israel's rebellion and God's response. Let me just give you a little taste of that once again. You heard me read. Let me read verse 16. But they, after all this goodness that God has, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, did not obey your commands. They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and a appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Oh, I love that. Do you know God is more ready to forgive you than you are ready to receive his forgiveness? He's ready to forgive. Good, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them by day. They would not depart from there by day. And the pillar at night to light for them the way. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. How many of you older guys worked all day in the yard beginning of summer and you were really sore afterwards? Yeah. Forty years in the wilderness. Feet did not swell. Look over at um, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their back, killed your pride, and on and on and on. God's goodness, they rebelled. God's goodness, they disobeyed. God's goodness, they turned their back on him. What a picture of sin. I don't care that you're good to me. I want my sin more than I want you. Lack of gratitude for the goodness of God 
feeling entitled to the goodness of God. And I want to pause for a moment and just say this. In light of this, how do we react July the 4th as Christians? Can I make a suggestion or two? God has been so good to us in our country. Give him thanks. We have religious freedom that was purchased by the blood of patriots. Thank him for that. We have so much Christian literature in English. Do you know there is more Bible study material in English than all the other languages combined? Acknowledge the role the Christians played in the founding of our nation. Not everyone was a Christian. Some were. The influence of Christians like in the civil rights movement. The most important idea in America is a Bible idea that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain and alienable rights. That's a Bible idea. We, we fail to live up to that, but it's God's idea. Thank him for that. And remember that our, our hope is not a Christian America. Jesus was not an American. His kingdom is greater, and the U.S. is a temporary institution. We look for a better country. And until then, we're salt, and we're light, and we do our best to point our nation and our friends to Christ and his hope. God has been so good. What, and what have we done as a country about his goodness? Turned our back on his goodness. So what is God like when we fail? How does God deal with rebellion? That's the question they're trying to answer here. That's what they're basing their prayer on, what God has done in redemptive history. And over and over and over in these verses, across a span of thousand, a thousand years, God extended them mercy. God extended them grace. God heard their cries. Here's the last thing. God is gracious and ready to forgive. It's one of the most hopeful phrases in all of the Bible. If you won't come to Jesus, it's not because he won't have you. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He did not forsake them. And over and over, God's people have been presumptuous and stiff-necked and arrogant and rebellious and blasphemous. And we've trusted in other gods and given them credit for what God has done. I don't know, you may be here in this morning and you're not a Christian and the reason is you're the reason you're not a Christian is you know some Christians. That's a hang-up. Let me help you with that guy that is so hypocritical and calls himself a Christian. When you come across an immature believer or a hip hypocritical believer in Christ, I hope that you'll see their hypocrisy not as a repellent for you, but as an encouragement. Let me tell you why. It means God's a good father. It means God is patient with his children as they're learning to walk. It means God allows scabbed knees and scraped up elbows. Would you feel welcome coming into a church if everybody were, were perfect? I wouldn't. The shortcomings in your Christian friends, your Christian family, your Christian co-workers is an invitation that you can belong to. Is God making us more and more holy? Yeah. Is it slower than we want to admit? Sure is in my case. 
What is God's response to stiff-necked, presumptuous, arrogant people who trust Him and then don't trust Him, trust Him and then don't trust Him? It's grace. It's grace. It's mercy. It's abounding love. He's compassionate. He's patient. And when things were good, they got fat and they got lazy. They didn't need God anymore. And God in His grace gave them over to their enemies. They cried out. What does He do? Does He say, you made your bed, now sleep in it? He's ready to forgive. And that's good news. You may be further along than I am, but this is really good news for me. So, what do you do with this long prayer? Should we pray this prayer? My answer, yes and no. It's a good pattern, but it does raise the question, how can God, who's righteous and just, how can God be just and forgive sin. How can God let a murderer and an adulterer like David into heaven? How can God let Paul, who killed Christians, into heaven? At some point, somebody's got to say, that's just not just. They ought to pay for what they did. How can you just forgive them? If you committed one sin a day, you'd be a pretty good person. The end of a year, that's what, 365 sins? Multiply if you live to be 60, multiply that, it's like 21,000 sins. You want to go before a traffic judge in Gregg County with 21,000 traffic tickets? What do you think he would do? What's just? So how can God just forgive people when justice demands They pay for what they've done. I don't want to wrap this up like this. The answer is that in Jesus Christ, God made a way to punish sin and yet show mercy. Look at this verse on the screen. Romans chapter 3. Everyone sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. How can He do that? He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Next part. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who sinned in the times past. Like all those people in Israel, they didn't get punished for what they did. Now they were disciplined, but they deserved a whole lot more. How can God be just and just overlook it? For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. God's going to punish sin, either in hell forever or in Jesus which is why I say to all of us, let's cling to Jesus. Let's come to Jesus. Because that's where God's mercy is. That's where God's abounding love. That's where His grace is. I was always confused growing up with 1 John 1, 9. I want to close with this. Which says, if we confess our sins, God's faithful. I can understand He promised to forgive me. He's faithful and just to forgive me. How can God be just and forgive me? It's because Jesus paid for my sins once 
and it would not be just to punish the same sins twice. Legally, we can't do that. You can't be tried and condemned for the same crime twice. Is that right? Lawyer? Yeah, yeah. And God is just. So when I confess, he is faithful and he's just to forgive me, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. What a great God we have. How merciful, how good that he found a way and to break the cycle of sin because, friends, there will be a day when we will not sin anymore. Can anybody say amen to that? There will be a day. And until then, his grace is with us. Come on up, worship team, if you would. Let me pray for us. Lord, what an amazing thing, amazing person you have been through all of the history of your people, Old Testament, New Testament. How kind you have been to us. What hope there is, even when we brought a mess on ourselves. Your grace is there. Your forgiveness is there. Your love you, you, doesn't interrupt your plan for us. And all the while, you're with us. Thank you for that. And thank you for the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we owe everything to you. We love you. Thank you for giving your life. Holy Spirit, thank you for taking what the Lord Jesus did and applying it to our lives. And I pray for anyone in this room who has not come to Christ, not trusted him. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself today, this morning. Draw them to yourself. Give them faith. Give them repentance. Give them a new birth. Praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.